Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, History Heroes, and welcome to a very serious and uh, academic discussion about women from history you may or may not be familiar with. I am uh, Professor Emily. And I am Dr. Kelly. Oh, I love that you're a doctor. Right? I, had to, I, had, I don't know. I was like, you said professor, and I was like, I have to be something different. You do. <laughs> you have to be better than me. <laughs> oh, I wasn't going for that. <laughs> but uh, welcome to the Why About Herstory podcast, the women's history podcast where two longtime best gal pals get drunk on wine, or in this case, whatever booze is available, and have very serious discussions about women's history. Yes, it's like a lecture. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay, so Kelly and I have hit uh, a major podcasting milestone, you guys. We got our first one-star review. And honestly, I've been I've been waiting for this. Oh, like, yeah, I have too. Like, okay, I, I want to see. I want to see what it's going to be. I figured it was either going to be, like, really, like, constructive criticism. Like, hey, guys, you could really do better at this. It was, like, you know, a one for me. Or I thought it was going to be, like, super like women's history women are taking everything right it was gonna be one of those people that's like oh you're too feminist yeah and our one-star review here wait i have a picture and i'm gonna read it because it honestly made me laugh out loud like i was saying in the office jared's like what the fuck is wrong with you i'm like we got our first one-star review he's like why are you laughing i'm like read it Oh, yeah. No, when you texted me about it, I was like, oh, God, like Emily texted me. It has to be bad. And then you like followed it up by LOL or something. And I was like, wait, what? And so then I I went and read it. And I was like, oh, God, like and then, yeah, I did the same thing. I told Justin about it. And he's like, wow, wow. So the review we got was titled Not For Me. If you want a serious discussion slash lecture on history, this is not the podcast for you. And that's it. And it was the most, like, mellow, matter-of-fact review, but just the fact that someone took time and energy out of their day to let us know, you know what, this it wasn't the serious historical discussion I thought that two women getting drunk on wine would have, and uh, I'm not on board. And dude, or ma'am, or whatever... Is totally fine, <laughs> but right? I that am... is totally fine. But I feel like you didn't read our show description. <laughs> I'm so sorry if our show description gave you the wrong impression uh, about what we're doing here. But if you are a new listener and have any confusion, this is two women drinking who are not history experts talking about women from history you probably haven't heard of. And do it in our, our own damnedest. style, <laughs> <laughs> in our own chaotic, super unprofessional, non-academic style. So, before so we get started, in. <laughs> yeah, strap in and strap on, people, because this shit is a wild fucking ride. Fuck yeah, it is. So, before we get started, I do have to say their name. Uh, I just found out that on April twelfth, so it's April seventeenth that we're recording. April 12th was Beverly Cleary's 104th birthday. Oh, wow. Do you remember her, like, from when you were a kid? She's a yeah. children's author, and she wrote, like, Beezus and Ramona, Muggy Maggie, Ramona Quimby, like, all of that stuff. I remember the Ramona Quimby books. I, re- I, okay, so my parents gifted me the book Muggy Maggie, which is about a girl learning why she needs to learn cursive, which is fucking laughable now because no one learns cursive anymore because i didn't see the point i was like 
I literally just figured out print. And now you want me to relearn it in a fancy right. style. Go <laughs> fuck yourself. But That's funny. my parents gifted me that book as like a way of like, I think it was supposed to be encouraging, but Maggie does not come off well in the book. So I think they were also shaming me into getting my ass together and learning cursive. That's funny. That's really funny. She is 104 fucking years old and she's going to outlive all of us. And I'm okay with that. That was going to be my next question. I was going to be like, is she still alive? Yeah, no, she just on April 12th. She just turned 104 years old. That's fuck. Yeah, she's fucking kicking it. She's up there with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Like we need to form a protective shield and just protect her. (laughs) We're we're going to form a commune of women. That we need to protect. <laughs> we will form form a funerary cult that is decidedly anti-funeral. <laughs> funerary prevention cult. Funerary, <laughs> yeah, prevention, funerary cult. prevention cult. That's perfect, <laughs> Emily. Oh my god! So yeah, cheers to you, Beverly Cleary. Beverly Cleary with the decidedly difficult name. You are a fucking legend. And look at that—we took two, care of two things at once. We cheers. And did a say you're on fire with say their names. I think that's three in a row for you. I am I step up my fucking game. I am living my best life right now. <laughs> Apparently, your best, qu- your best quarantine life. You have too much time on your hands. I'm a quarantine. Yeah, apparently. Yes. All right, Kelly. What are you drinking today? Uh, I'm not drinking alcohol today because once again, I haven't eaten dinner yet. Uh, I'm drinking raspberry tea, Snapple. Snapple, but unfortunately, the kind that doesn't have a, a, a fact on the cap. So oh, I can't, no. I can't tell you a Snapple fact today because I don't have one for you. Your Snapple fact of the day is that Beverly Cleary turned 104 <laughs> on April 12, 2020. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm drinking a leftover Cider Boys. It's the apple cinnamon version because nice. I, I stuck it somewhere forgot it was there and then i was like oh shit i need booze for today and like my brain reached deep down and was like you have booze in the Here. back of a rando cabinet get that's it funny. that's so, funny so we've done our say their name we've done our drinks we've done our cheers kelly it is your day to start it is so i'm covering everyone's favorite topic the nazis <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna guess slavery <laughs> <laughs> top two yeah. um but i think you'll like this nazi involved story okay i'm that's that's a difficult task so bring it on i, I should say it's not it, it involves nazis it is not necessarily about nazis okay so taking you back to august of 1923 a lovely woman named Tr- truce overstegen I'm really sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. You gotta say it with confidence. Truce over Stegen. I mean, you made it sound German, but she was Dutch. But yeah, we'll go with it. Truce over Stegen. Yeah, that's better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she was born in August of 1923. And two years later, her sister, Freddie over Stegen, was born in September. So we have two sisters. It's great. So, her and her family, or they and their family, actually lived on a barge in in the Netherlands, which is kind of interesting. Wait, what? Yep, that was it. That was the only information on Wait. it, that they lived in a, on a barge. Barge like the ship? Yes, like a flat-bottomed boat. 
Like, were they tra- like, okay? Were they working on the barge and living there? It's like when you live above your store, or were were they just like you know what apartments are for assholes? We're getting a barge. We're gonna I be don't mobile. know. We're gonna be seaworthy. You are gonna have a childhood that literally no one else can relate to. It's gonna <laughs> be great. <laughs> right. Um. Apparently, the barge was in the city of Harlem or ha- Harlem. It's H A A R L E M. So I don't know if it's pronounced the same, and Hair we just stole love. it from them. Yeah, <laughs> I'll just I'll rely on you for the accents for this one. Yeah, um, yeah. So they grew up in the city of Harlem. Originally, um, they had both parents, but their parents divorced when they were children, and they were raised by their working class mother, who was a communist and taught her daughters the communist principles. Not that that really matters, but like that's kind of the household they were raised in. Okay. It, in fact, even before the war started, the the family harbored people from like Lithuania that like refugees and stuff that they would like hide on their ship when people were looking for them. So like right away they were helping people out. Right. When the war like th- they were harboring people like there must have been I don't know what was going on in Lithuania before World War 2, but I'm guessing it wasn't good if they were having people hide on their barge. Probs not. Um, that shifted, and when the war started, they were they hid um a Jewish couple in their home. Aww. So the, they were help you know they were helping people, and they they learned through their mother's example and this example of like helping these refugees. This is a quote from Jerome Pleister, who's the chair of the National Hanny Shaft Foundation. I'll get into who Hanny Shaft is a little later in my story. Okay. Um, the quote is. Freddie and Truce learned that if you have to help somebody like refugees, you have to make sacrifices for yourself. I think that was one of the main drives for them, the high moral principle and preparedness of their mother to act when it really mattered. Aww. So they they learned early, like, you know, you should help people, but it's going to come at a sacrifice to yourself. Right. So that's where we're at. Beginning of the war, they're harboring a Jewish family, you know. Doing God's work. Exactly. They're, they're, they're helping. And they actually started going further to help. The um, Both Truce and Freddie started handing out anti-Nazi pamphlets. So they would go around Harlem and they would hand out pamphlets for people. They would even go so far as to put like st- uh, stickers and writing over like the Nazi propaganda that they would find. Like if they saw... Like posters being, you know, the the Nazi version of "We want you, Uncle Sam" posters, which was probably like Adolf Hitler "We want you" posters. Yeah, <laughs> how horrifying is that imagery? Just a really angry, angry Hitler pointing at you, saying, "I yeah. want you." And that's depending terrifying. on who you are, that has different levels of terror associated right. with it. So yeah, they would like they would glue like warnings across them or write stuff across them to try and you know to like detract people and actually freddie when she was interviewed later she said uh we glued warnings across german posters in the street calling for men to work and then we'd hurry off on our bikes so they would just like go around doing this because i mean if you think about it this was when when did the war break out 31 I thought it was like 32 or 33. I, I that was that was when Hitler officially came to power. I think it was like I know 32. I'm like when when did it actually start? But you think about it. So, Freddie was born in 1925. So she was only like like 7 or 8 maybe. Yeah, maybe maybe 10 if if we give it to 35. Like she's a straight up child. 
right? And her sister's only two years older than her. So they're straight up children. Yeah, they're straight up children doing this and they're, you know, they're doing their own thing. Um, and then they, when they were a little bit older, I read I read in one of my sources that um, Freddie would be would have been 13 when the when the next section happened. So she's okay. still a child and uh, her sister's only 15 doing these dangerous acts. You know, they, they were yes, they were undermining Hitler, but they were also very dangerous because if someone caught them, you know, they probably would have been killed even if they were children and girls. Right. But them doing this caught the attention of the commander of the Harlem Resistance Group who came to their house and asked their mother if he could recruit both of them, Freddie and Truce. Oh, my God. No parenting book prepares you for that situation. Um, Their mother consented and the girls agreed. Like, it wasn't just the mom going, yeah, you can take my children. Like, the mom consented (laughs) and, and the girls were like, yeah, we'll help. Chapter 10, Um, how to initiate your girls into a resistance recruitment. What's the right decision for your family? (laughs) What Um, the hell? So Truce also did an interview. I think it was probably the same interview that Freddie did. And she recalls, quote, only later did he tell us what we would actually be doing, sabotaging bridges and railway lines and learn to shoot, to shoot Nazis. Oh, my God. I remember my sister saying, well, that's something I've never done before. (laughs) Well, you know, I can ride my bike. I can probably plant bombs. I mean, I imagine you just like set it down. Shooting Nazis a new one, though. That's uh, that's not what I have a lot of experience in. But I'm a fast learner, and uh, I right? enjoy bringing my skills to your team. She's like in a job interview, <laughs> right? She's like, yeah, I can do this. Don't worry, I'll figure it out. I'm a, I'm a fast. Yeah, exactly. I'm a fast learner, smooth talker. You know, I'm a uh, good with people. <laughs> I'm a team player. I, uh, you know, when you say one, two, three, shoot, I will shoot on right. shoot. <laughs> I can, I can bike. I know how to bike. <laughs> you know, skill. the tassels on my bike actually make me go faster. <laughs> if that's an advantage. Also, I've got right. some beads on the spokes. It's fucking bitching. Mm. Like, add some style, guys. <laughs> right. I can take the card off if it's making too much noise. If you need me to be stealth, I can do that. Yeah, black up stealth <laughs> mode. <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, that's funny. Okay. So, you know, and this this was the time that they were, like, using dynamite to blow up bridges and railroad tracks and stuff. And this was, um, at the time that they were recruited, this was after the Nazis had invaded the Netherlands at this point. Okay. So, yay. No, um, that's... <laughs> what? So, that, that's what they were doing. They started out by assisting in, like, the sabotage of railway lines and bridges there is at least one instance on record where Truce, the older of the two sisters, um, seduced an SS officer into the woods with her, you know, being, you know, flirting and, you know, being like, oh, let's, you know, go to the woods, you know, yeah. sex, sexy, sexy, not finger, finger quotes. quotes, but sexy, you know, bedroom eyes. She didn't need finger quotes. She was like, you, me, woods, sex now. <laughs> right. They're soldiers. Of course, they were like, yeah. But so she lured them into the woods with the promise of like, you know, sex, so that one of the other resistance members could just shoot, could shoot the guy. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. I've heard of these girls. Yeah. I wanted to were... cover them. Oh, shit. That's funny. I couldn't, I couldn't remember what their names were. I was like, please tell me these are the sisters that killed a bunch of Nazis by, like, leveraging the fact that none of them could say no to women. <laughs> right. And, yeah, that that's, they, they, no one's quite sure. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna skip ahead. We'll we'll get back to that. 
I'm sorry, so, I'm throwing off your mojo. No, you're fine. At first, that's what they would do is they would they you, they would help the other resistance officers, you know. But the girls learned they were taught to shoot, so they began doing these assassination missions on their own because they're fast learners. They got right? the tassels, they got the guns, they're good to go. <laughs> right, and I mean they they were both teenagers by this point. Like I said, I think by this point. Freddie was 13 or 14, and Truce was two years older. Can I just say, like, how mature could these girls have looked where the Nazis weren't just total creeps? Being like, well, you look like you just got your period two days ago for the first time, and I am into it. That's not how Nazis sound. (laughs) Okay, it's uh, so on my... I, I guess I had a side note that I missed. Is that so? When World War II began in nineteen, so it was nineteen thirty nine. Oh, sh- wow! <laughs> we were way off. Oh my god! So yeah, the the sisters were thirteen and sixteen just because of their birthdays. Okay, because it was sub- September first, nineteen thirty one. So yeah. sixteen and fourteen for most of it. That's but, yeah, still so, so fucking young, man. Oh, right. Like, I I couldn't handle my very basic and very straightforward life at those ages, let alone, hey, join the resistance and help us kill Nazis. Like, you seduce them, we shoot them. Right. 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 They also assisted in helping um, Jewish children find safe houses, which is also super dangerous. Well, that's like their bread and butter. Right. That's like their their side mission. Like two days out of the womb, they were opening up. They were learning secret knocks and handshakes. <laughs> right. Exactly. So they went on from assassinating just like Nazis to focusing on killing the Dutch collaborators of these people that would that would arrest Jewish refugees and resistance members. So they oh. were kind of like, OK, let's help. Let's help on the home front. Um, and a scholar or a researcher known as Bas von Benda Beckman that's a fun name yes, to say right said these were unusual they were unusual these girls they were a lot there were a lot of women involved in the resistance in the netherlands but not so much in the way these girls were there are not many of exa- examples of women who actually shot collaborators themselves wow yeah so that's a thing that's, I mean, just imagine that a couple of teenagers who are trying to defend their country against invading Nazis and the people who are helping them, which like Dutch or not are no better, and just being put in that position in the first place and then being like, we have to kill these people. Right. Or they'll kill us. Like, that. that's exactly. it. And they're already like, killing other people. Like, it was a fight for their lives, 100%. Mm-hmm. So, on these missions at this time when it was just the two of them, Freddie tended to be she would follow people and keep a lookout because she was the younger one and she looked so young they even made a note in one of the things I was reading that if she put braids in she would look even younger okay. you know because that kind of it gives you that youthful appearance so she would be the one to like follow people and like track their marks because you know people were just like oh it's a kid she's got you know, like no no one looks twice at a kid she's got like a giant lollipop and is always twirling one of her pigtails going la 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 right but it is known that both sisters would if the if in the situation would shoot to kill uh however not much is known on exactly how many they killed nazis or dutch collaborators because both sisters would say that they were soldiers and soldiers don't say how many people they've killed this is true and you also don't ask 
Like, if anyone didn't learn that social rule, you never ask a service member or a veteran, have you killed anyone and how many? And here's the thing. If you do and they're really excited about it, fucking run. (laughs) Right. That's creepy. Yeah. That's not okay. Right. It is thought that Freddie was the first of them to kill someone and that she killed them while they were riding by on a bike oh or why she why they why she was biking by. Oh, my God. It was a tassel drive by. Right. Exactly. All he heard before he died was the clickety clack of the beads in her spokes. And then it, we went black. Right. Oh, that's horrifying. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I d- I'm not saying I disagree necessarily, but this is, like, the horrors of war, man. Right. It's wild. Here, here's another quote quote from Truce. If if you're squeamish, I would suggest skipping ahead, like, a minute, because <laughs> this quote is not the best. This is your trigger warning. Right. So this, this is Truce who is recounting this for a book that I actually really want to read that's called Seducing and Killing Nazis, which is about the three women I'm about to get into the third one in a second. But Truce said, quote, Once I was confronted with an SS soldier, a Dutch SS soldier even, who was killing a small baby by hitting it against a wall. What? He grabbed, he grabbed the baby and hit it against the wall. The father and sister had to watch. They were obviously hysterical. The child was dead. I shot that guy right then and there. It wasn't an assignment, and I don't regret it. You shouldn't. That is the perfect situation in which you shoot someone. What right. the fuck? Exactly. What a horrifying thing to like. What? Yeah. She she talks about another time where she she saw them just picking out people from the streets, putting up putting them up against the wall and like shooting them because that's what sometimes Nazis did. And that's terrible. Yeah. So remember, these girls aren't just like, oh, we're going to be so cool and kill a bunch of people like this isn't psychotic. This is. These people are murdering innocent citizens and we need to stop them. And unfortunately, they will not stop unless they die. In this case, this person was actively murdering a baby. Yeah. In front of the family. Like, what? Right. Exactly. Oh, that dude is in hell right now having the worst time. Right. So eventually the the duo of sisters did become a trio, not with another sister. They were joined by a woman known as Hanny Shaft. Um, she was a little bit older than them. So at when they were 14 and 16, she would have been 18. So she was a little bit older. Um, she was also born in Harlem, in Holland, just like they were. Um, her family was also very much involved in like social justice and politics. Um, she was encouraged to pursue law and become a human rights lawyer. So um, at the time, she was actually studying um, law in the University of Amsterdam, and she became friends with a lot of Jewish students. So like she knew a lot of Jewish people. And then when the German occupation began... Something I didn't know, actually. Apparently, students were required to sign a declaration of allegiance to Germany to continue oh, yep. studying. Yep. Which I didn't know. Horrifying. Right. And she refused. She was like, nope, I'm not going to do that. So she also started working with the resistance, originally separate of the sisters, um, just kind of starting with stealing ID cards for Jewish residents like so that they would look non-Jewish. You know, and then she acted as a courier, and then she decided she wanted to work with weapons. So she started helping with the sabotaging and assassination, and then yeah, she was she was linked up 
um, with the sisters, and she actually knew she learned to speak Ju- German fluently. Wow! So that's probably why they put her with the sisters because they were kind of already doing that, you know, alluring German soldiers in and stuff like that. There was one job she refused to take. However, um, she was asked to kidnap the children of a Nazi official, and she she refused. Oh, which I'm like, that's going too far. Yeah, like I get this is war, and like people are. Doing horrible things with babies, but that's like don't fuck up the kids, guys. That's a stretch right. too far. Please and th- no. and that's what she said. She said that um she knew that if she failed, the children would have been killed, and she felt that it was too similar to the Nazis' acts of acts of terror, so she wouldn't do it. Yeah. So she was also she she did get spotted at an assassination, and so she became known to the Nazis as the girl with the red hair. And she was actually placed on the Nazis' most wanted list at at one point. And no one has bleached their hair faster ever. <laughs> uh, she actually dyed it black. Oh, nice. She went the other way. That's interesting. I like it. She she right. like went real goth with it. Started wearing black yeah. eyeliner and everything. Yeah, and so the the three of them teamed up. And became like their own little assassination cell. I love that. Three and best friends, girls. obviously. So yeah, they they and they, so they just kept going on the missions. Unfortunately, um, at a military checkpoint in March of 1945, Hanny was captured. Did they check her roots? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but she was caught uh, distributing an illegal communist newspaper. Oh no. Which was a cover story, obviously. She was actually transporting documentations for the resistance. Um, and she was interrogated and tortured and put in solitary confinement. And she was identified by the roots of her hair. Oh, no! I was joking! By a former colleague. No! What? Yeah. Fuck you! That person is also in hell having a terrible time. Right? Uh, so she was killed on April 1945, in April of 1945. Oh, fuck. Uh, three weeks before the war ended. No! Yep. No! Two, two men took her to the dunes where she was killed, shot at close range, and only wounded her. Apparently after that happened, she told her executioners, quote, I shoot better. Oh my god. And, and then they delivered the final shot, so, but. Okay, like. You, you know how you hear, like, badass quotes by people who are dying or about to be killed? And you always kind of wonder, like, mm, is that true? But, like, these are the people who are trying to kill her and probably right. don't want her to seem like a badass. So I think she probably said something even more badass. And they're like, we got to tone this shit down. Right. She's way too cool. <laughs> right. Oh, that so is one tragic. Really interesting thing. I mean, yeah, it's tragic. So after the war when they were recovering remains from these the dunes where she was shot, because apparently that was a very common place for Nazi executions, they found 422 members of the resistance in these dunes. Oh, no. 421 men and one woman. <gasps> Seriously? Yep, and that was Hanny. That is wild. Oh, my God. Right. And she she was reburied um, in an honorary cemetery um, in the presence of the princess and prince at the time. Um, and then later, when that princess became the queen, she made a commemorative statue of her in a park in Harlem. 
Oh, I'm glad she was able to be buried because like with the Nazi executions and how they tried to cover up everything they did. It's like, I, I mean, how can you recover everyone? And you can't. There's tons of people who it's just like, we don't know what happened or where they could be or anything. And so that's great that she has she was found and now she's got a statue and hopefully right. a whole bunch and if of we other have recognition. Any, if we have any international history stamp collectors, there was a postage stamp in East Germany that has her on it. Oh, I love that it's in Germany too. Right. That's sweet. Yeah. And she does. She has she has a bunch of schools named after her, a streets named streets named after her. Um there is a foundation, like I said, the Han- Hanny Shaft Foundation. I mentioned her briefly earlier. There's a bunch of books written on her, and then she's actually remembered each year in November during a national event held in Harlem. Wow. And that was seventy five years ago this month. That she right. was murdered. Yep. And she she did. She was one of 95 people to receive the Dutch Cross of Resistance. Oh. And General Eisenhower also awarded her a dec- decoration. No one's quite sure what. They think it was the Medal of Freedom, but they're not sure. It was the Medal of you're a fucking badass and we're not worthy. Right. And Nazis okay. suck. <laughs> so going back to the sisters. Freddie and Truce. Yes. Okay. So they survived the war. Thank God, because if you told me they died too, I was going to like mute my mic and just walk away. <laughs> no, I just, I went on a side thing about Hanny because I didn't have as much information about her. Like she was really cool, but I, I mainly studied uh, Freddie and Truce. Okay. But after the war, obviously the sisters had a lot of trauma to deal with. Not only the trauma of killing people, but the trauma of losing their best friend as well. Right. And I mean, I'm sure you th- they were younger than her. So I'm sure they yep. looked up to her. There's this older sister mentality. And there's also, man, she's smart. She's been doing this. She's got it together. And she's the one that dies. I'm sure it makes you feel even more vulnerable than you already must feel. Very much so. And the sisters dealt with their trauma. I mean, it was definitely I can guarantee you they had PTSD. But obviously, at the time, that really wasn't a th- like it was a thing. But it like what it was wasn't a thing it was not acknowledged as an actual disorder exactly and at it in a very limited frame of mind it was acknowledged as shell shock but i'm sure no one would suspect a couple of young girls who didn't go to the front lines would have shell shock right so truce went on to get married to a man named pete menger in 1945 so shortly after the war oh yeah um she had Four children, the oldest of whom she named after Hanny, which is really sweet. She went on to be a guest speaker at a lot of universities and secondary schools about anti-Semitism, war, tolerance, you know, all of those things. Um, She wrote a book called Not Then, Not Now, Not Ever, which was published in 1982 about her experiences. Wow. Um, She also went on to do... She kind of took that pain that she had on the inside and she became like a sculptor. And so that was kind of her coping mechanism. She, you know, she was more public of the two sisters after the war, whereas Freddie very much kind of withdrew and she she coped. And this is a quote from her by getting married and having babies. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um. So after the war. She got married as well, obviously, and she had 
three kids and just kind of lived a very, very quiet life afterward. She was done. She did her part. She's like, I'm going to live my life now. Y'all can do your thing. Right. And at first, they were very much like not they didn't like they wanted to be recognized but they weren't like pushy about it you know they both suffered from insomnia really badly freddie recalls in an in an interview that she recalls seeing a person she'd shot fall to the ground and then having that impulse to go and help them oh my god and true said in the same interview she kind of responded with we did not feel it suited us it never suits anybody unless they are real criminals so they're not going out there like, let's shoot some Nazis, guys. This isn't like no. Inglorious Bastards style where everyone's having just the best time ever. It's these right, are like, yeah, they. Sorry, go no, ahead. Uh, the, these are children who are put in a really terrible position where they're they're recognizing that these people are invading their country and they're murdering people. And they have this sense of, you know, life is precious instilled into them early on and they're like we need to stop this and to be passive or inactive isn't going to do it and so they were soldiers no one wants to kill anyone unless you're a lunatic but they right. had to and they're fucking children doing this right well and it, what i was going to say is that like yeah they they agreed to be in the resistance but that that doesn't mean they agreed to kill people. Or that they right. enjoyed it or wanted right. to. No one wants to be in that position. Right. And so, like what, like I said, well, Truce was very public and very much, you know, maybe not seeking recognition, but, like, acknowledgement, maybe. Um, it took until Freddie was a lot older for her to kind of want that acknowledgement. And Sophia Haldermans, who actually wrote the book Seducing and Killing Nazis, which I, like I said, I really want to read. Yeah. Because that's about Hanny, Truce, and Freddie. And it was, she interviewed the two sisters to write the book. So I'm like, I want to read that book. Yes, please. But she, she said in an article I read, um, it's quote, I remember a surreal discu discussion between the two sisters where they were quarrel quarreling about which of them shot one particularly n Nazi spy. Oh my God. You've got like, to be that's kidding. That's just me. kind of funny. Like, um, and this was, you know, part of like they were, they didn't necessarily want to be recognized, but they're, you know, or they did by this point want to be recognized, but it was like, which one of them should be recognized with which thing? No, I'm just kidding. Um, they did eventually receive the Dutch mobilization war cross. I don't know where that falls in Dutch medals. I assume it's but a they big got deal. One. They were both still alive when they received it. Oh, I'm glad. And Sophie very much said that after so many years in the shadows, she wants to bring this public recognition to them. Um, and the thing that stuck with her, she said, is that um, so this is Sophie. And then there's a quote from Truce within the quote from Sophie. <laughs> so it's quote, they wanted their stories to be known to teach people that, as Truce put it, even when the work is hard, Double quote, you must always remain human. Aww. Well, and I mean, if you put this in the perspective that they're, they're soldiers, this is war. And there's always kind of this readjustment of your mentality when you're in war. Things that would be really maybe uncomfortable to a civilian become something right. you joke about. Like Jared, yeah, Jared's told me. That's was, that was your life. Yeah. And Jared's told me some stories where I'm like, how... 
nothing like extreme, but I was like, how is that funny? Or how are you not terrified? He's like, that's just, it's your day to day. That's the world you're living in. And um, if you are terrified of it and you don't accept it, you're not going to survive. Right. And unfortunately, one of the one of the reasons the women got sidelined was because they were viewed as communists. And, you know, for so long, that was like, uh, oh, God, we can't give them any power. Don't give them any recognition. So I'm glad that the Netherlands finally did recognize them. Right. And there's nothing wrong with them wanting to be recognized, I feel. No. Because how many women are erased from history and their accomplishments and contributions are just completely left to the wayside? Good for them for taking control of their narrative while they're alive. Right. And they they are both dead now. Oh, damn it. Um, <laughs> Both women died at the age of 92, okay. which is kind of interesting. That's um, cool. <laughs> Truce died in 2016 and Freddie in 2018, one day before she turned 93. That is fucking wild. And that they were just the two years apart also. like Right. Oh, my yeah, God. They, they lived long lives. Like I said, Truce went on to be a sculptor. She wrote a book. She also had a family. Freddie had a family. And that's all she wanted, you know. And it was just, I don't know. Yeah, I came across them. I came across someone else that's actually World War II, but I'm like, and I'm going to cover her, but I'm like, I'm going to wait a week or two. (laughs) We don't need two Nazi stories in a row. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you covered these uh, women because I've I've heard of them on a lot of true crime podcasts and I wanted to cover them. And it's just one of those things I haven't gotten around to it. So I'm really glad you did. Right. And there's I'll post on the blog. There's like a really cute picture of the two sisters with like the prime minister of the Netherlands, like holding up their medal. Oh, like, little babies, but they're not right. really. Not, not anymore. Yeah. God, what an insane life. What, I mean, cheers to them and poor, poor fucking Hanny. I know. That made me sad, but I'm like, I'm not going to just like not mention her because she was part of the sister's story yeah no and she she was a really big deal and she did a lot of really she her her story is kind of intertwined with the sisters i think the only difference is she wasn't related by blood and she didn't survive right and she she did do some stuff on her own to begin with right you know and then was with them and kind you know i'm sure she just still did stuff on her own just like i'm sure the sisters did stuff on their own as well So something that's really chilling about this story, and I was going to mention it when you were talking about it, and I just didn't get the chance, but just a few years ago in in Rochester, where we're based out of, someone was sticking up a bunch of white supremacist stickers all over downtown and around the campus and all of that. And they were kind of covert. Like, at first, they looked kind of just, oh, well, that's just like a Roman sticker. But what it is is that white supremacists idolize a lot of these, like, ancient cultures because they see them as being pure and white, even though a lot of times they act they're super not or we have nothing to back that up. So, I mean, it's just it's like a whitewashing of history in one of the grossest ways that an entire civilization were all super fucking white. They right. may have lived like, in yeah, the Mediterranean, no. but they were white as shit. <laughs> like, right? But 
in response, Rochester uh, businesses started putting up a lot of signs, all are welcome here. And actually, uh, a local photographer invited members of the community to come into the studio and have their picture taken to be made into posters and stickers to put over the white supremacist ones. And so you talking about those two young girls seeing these Nazi stickers and posters and being like, I've had enough of this shit and putting things over it. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, that literally happened just a few years ago. Something like that. Do you remember when that happened at River Falls? Oh, God. Uh, It happened when we were on campus, too, that someone went around, like, doing something like that. And they wrote a slur in the library. And Someone wrote in the library bathroom uh, a specific date for the future. it was bad. Where uh, it was like, all the blacks and Asians here will die, which is really horrifying uh but man did our campus fucking band together after that we were pissed and we had a big rally where everyone wore red and it was honestly a really anxiety inducing day because i'm like if someone so that was on the day that was written on the threat and so everyone yeah. wore red and got together and i was like man uh feel like i'm a huge target right now but i also don't want to let this person make me afraid and they had a whole thing up in the uc where people got to you know write about like fuck you and so right and i mean i I just yeah it's crazy that stuff like that just still fucking happens yeah thankfully we are not the position where we actually have to kill anyone jesus i can't imagine or blow up bridges or right no thanks not yet I would be more willing to blow up a bridge right, <laughs> than kill someone. Yeah. But if it came down to it, you can teach me how to shoot. You know. Not you specifically. Someone can teach me how to shoot. You don't want me to teach you anything. But you know what? Put tassels on my bike. I can do anything. I'm invincible. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, today I am covering a non-Nazi related story. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I am covering Frances Perkins. And she's actually probably a little more well-known just because she was a really high-profile public figure in her time. Uh, But I had never heard of her, so I'm not putting her up there with Amelia Earhart. Right. I don't... The name doesn't sound familiar, but I'll let you know if the story does. I... You'll know everything about this story almost except her, which is the weird thing. Oh, God. That's always really sad. Yeah. It's, like, really history? It, it's going to get a little weird, but just hang hang in there with me. I like weird. I like weird. So special shout out to my coworker who first recommended her to me. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I love when my coworkers tell me about amazing women. And also shout out to my mom who sent me an article about Frances, which meant I need to do her right fucking now. Because my coworker told me about her a while back and I just haven't gotten around to it and then my mom's like BT dubs I'm like okay I have to do her now it's okay that's gonna be my next week one because my mother-in-law sent me something and I was like oh I should probably I should probably get on that (laughs) (laughs) okay so before I get started I just want to remind everyone these are shallow dives there is so much information on Frances Perkins and she did so many wonderful things and there was like absolutely no way for me to cover everything or go into as much detail as I wanted. I learned more about her than I'm actually going to be able to share with you. But I do encourage everyone to explore her story beyond this episode. It This is your appetizer. This is your teaser. Right. I would recommend going and checking. There's not like a ton out there on the sisters, but like if you really want to know more, I would really probably, I haven't read it yet, but I would probably recommend that 
the seducing the Nazis book because like I said, the author went and interviewed them and it's on all three of the the women. So Yeah, I wanna read that. Like <coughs> Christmas. If I, get, if I get it, I'll let you know. Okay. <laughs> so Francis was born as Fanny in Boston, Massachusetts on April tenth, eighteen eighty. So she just had her birthday. Oh. Two days before Beverly Cleary. <laughs> nice. Uh, growing up, her father, who owned a stationer's business, which I think is like a bookstore, I I spent too much time trying to figure out, and that's why I came up with. I would assume so, or something maybe that sells like stuff for writing, like ink and stuff. Yeah. So he passed his love of Greek literature on to Frances. Uh, she also came from a long line of women who worked in education. So she's coming from nice. a pretty cool place. Yeah. Frances went to classical high school in Worcestershire. Shit. Worcester? Worcestershire? Both. Either. It's fine. You know what? Come at me, Worcestershire. (laughs) Uh, And she earned her Bachelor of Arts degree in chemistry and physics from Mount Holyoke College in 1902. Nice. She's a smarty. Yeah. So college was a really transformative time for Frances, as it is for many of us. She became class president and became acquainted with the suffrage movement and progressive politics. Nice. Right? She also took a class from Professor Anna May Sewell, who assigned all of her students a factory tour so that they could study the working conditions. Oh, wow. Spoiler, this was the early 1900s, so the conditions were probably not super great. (laughs) Probably much like I discussed in our last episode when I talked about the stunt reporters going into factories. Right? And, oh, who was the, the Tinkerbell of paper bags? Was that Margaret Knight? Yes. She was the one who invented a machine so that workers wouldn't randomly get, get stabbed, stabbed by the machines they were working on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so shit was not okay. <laughs> so Frances points to this experience in Sewell's course as an influential event in her life that really drove her moving forward. Did she get stabbed by a machine? Almost. <laughs> she had a close call and she's like, I better be getting an A for this. Right. After graduation, Frances followed in the footsteps of the women in her family and went into teaching. She served as a chemistry teacher for two years at an all-girls school in Lake Forest, Illinois, which is just outside Chicago. Fuck yeah. In her spare time, she volunteered in settlement houses in Chicago. So I got a little into this. The settlement movement was a social reform movement that was meant to bring the rich and the poor together in a physical space in order to foster understanding and like interconnectedness. So it's not just like teaching rich people in a room full of rich people. Hey, poor people have it kind of hard. Maybe be more caring. It was like, meet these people because spoiler, they're actual people. So is it like the poor people live there and the rich people like visit or do they actually like live in the same place so it's actually more of a volunteer thing so settlement houses were established in poor urban areas and run by middle class to upper class volunteers who would help support low-income people and foster a sense of community and understanding so the settlement so they were like community driven halfway houses for poor people kind of so the settlement houses also provide services to low income people like childcare education and healthcare so these are kind of like community wow. centers almost that support low income people and people with better means who have the time 
and, you know, don't need to work as much can go volunteer there to not only support low income people, but also just enhance their humanity. I mean, it's kind of the same benefits people get from volunteering today. You're doing something good for someone who needs it and you're a better person for it. Yeah, that's awesome. So most notably, oh, I never heard of those before. I, I this was a whole movement, this whole idea of bringing the rich and the poor together to realize, oh shit, we're all people. What a novel! I concept. mean, clearly it didn't work, but well, I think it's more evolved because this whole idea of you know volunteering and you know meeting low income people or people in need and That's realizing, true. hey, we all kind of have the same wants, needs, and goals is not extinct. I mean, we still do it. So, right? That's just, just interesting that I've never heard of it right. before. So most notably, uh, she worked at Hull House, which is a really well-known settlement house in Chicago. And she worked with one of the founders, Jane Adams, who is a herstory hero in her own right. And we'll have to cover her in the future. But this isn't about her. This is not Jane's moment. No. In 1905, Frances changed her name from Fanny to Frances when she joined the Episcopal Church. And... I couldn't find any information like, do you always have to change your name when you join the Episcopal Church? But I feel like it's, you know, when you get confirmed in the Catholic Church and you choose your saint's name. Yeah. And then maybe it's like that. And then side personal note, my saint's name is also Francis. Is it really? Yeah. From uh, Francis de Salle, who is the patron saint of writers and the deaf. Mine's Lucille. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I just, I like Lucy, so I just went with Lucille. And I think it was, like, my boyfriend is at the time's, like, grandma's name or something, but I also just really like the name. See, I specifically wanted to pick a boy's name because <laughs> I was a little rebel and I didn't want to get confirmed. <laughs> but I love yeah, that. that sounds about I right. love that name, Lucille, because I immediately imagine the mom from Arrested Development. See, I imagine Lucille Ball. Oh, that's. Which I'm 100% okay with. And they're both fucking savage. So Right. So uh, in 1907, Francis moved to Philadelphia to pursue a degree in economics at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. So she's going to an Ivy League school in 1907, which is incredible. Yeah, that's badass. After two years in Philadelphia, she attended Columbia University and became involved in the suffrage movement. While earning her master's in political science from Columbia, which she did in 1910, she attended protests, went to organizational meetings, and stood on street corners advocating for the cause. So she's deep into the activism. All while going to school. Like, I couldn't handle shit while I was in school. I was such a garbage person. Yeah, I was too. Don't worry. I thought you were going to be like, yeah... You were. I know. <laughs> no, you're not a garbage person. So Frances made a name for herself in New York when she became the head of the New York office of the National Consumers League in 1910. So the same year she gets her master's. Wait, when did she move to New York? Columbia's in New York. Oh, yeah. I think. Right? I don't know. D- sh- don't at me. I don't have a fucking map. I'm not an atlas. <laughs> <laughs> Read up, Emily. Damn it. This is not an academic lecture slash discussion on history, you guys. <laughs> All right. Moving on. So, so Francis used this position to fiercely lobby for better working hours and conditions for laborers. In her free time, she taught as a professor of sociology at Adelphi College. You know, just... I like that that was her free time. Just to stave <laughs> off the boredom. 
That was her side hustle. <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> and then shit got real. On March... T- More real? Yes. <laughs> she didn't die, though. <laughs> this isn't one of those Not moments. Yet. On March 25th, 1911, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory caught on fire, killing 146 garment workers. 123 of the victims were young women and girls, mostly recent Italian and Jewish immigrants. The fire was likely caused by scraps of fabric, which were just scattered fucking everywhere, being ignited by a stray match or cigarette. And some think it could have been like static from the fabric particles in the air. But either way, this place was a fucking tinderbox. And it wasn't just the unsafe conditions that contributed to the fire. They also contributed to the significant loss of life. Doors and stairwells were locked to prevent theft or unauthorized breaks. This meant that there was nowhere for the workers to escape except out the windows. Mm. And some people were able to escape to the roof and, like, jump onto a nearby building. But for others, that wasn't an option. Right. The city was forever scarred with the image and sound of women leaping from the top of the building to their deaths. The youngest victims were only 14 years old. There were two 14-year-old girls who had to jump out of a window. Or they died inside of smoke inhalation or fire. I didn't figure it out. It was horrible regardless. I mean, really, like, all your choices in that, you know, chapter book are not great. It is the worst to choose your own adventure. adventure. (laughs) I don't want to do it. Oh, my God. Guys, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire Factory Fire is not fucking funny. But that is hilarious. I couldn't think of a better way to like describe no, it. No, it's true. All of your options are trash. So Frances herself witnessed the devastation. According to an article in uh, DC's The Sunday Star, quote, Frances Perkins was taking tea with some friends in Washington Square when the fire broke out. For hours, she watched the girls as they clung to the window ledges, their clothing in flames, leaping from the ninth floor to be crushed on the pavement below. Those who did not jump were burned or smothered in heaps behind a closed factory door. As she watched, she made up her mind that she would never rest until such conditions were made impossible. So, Frances has been kind of... Eating and living and breathing, you know, the progressive ideas of, you know, better working conditions, equal rights for women, all of this. And then she witnesses firsthand the city's greatest industrial disaster. She witnesses the body count of these horrible conditions and the way that this whole system is set up. And she's like, I cannot fucking this can't stand. This cannot continue. This can never happen again. Only a year before the fire, the same women and girls who perished had fought and won a 54-hour work week and other benefits. So they had actually been advocating for themselves for better conditions. And Frances had been part of this fight. She had helped push this forward. And they got the shortened work week and some benefits, but the conditions were still fucking awful. Yeah, that's terrible. As I said, this was the deadliest industrial disaster in New York's history and shined a much-needed spotlight on the horrid and unsafe conditions workers were forced to operate in. 
So this embodied everything Francis had been fighting for, and it was devastating to witness the body count that the poor working conditions had. God, I can't even imagine. Like, that that scars you for life. Well, and I feel like we have a clearer, uh, a clearer, we have more ability to empathize with what that must have been like, particularly with the September 11th attacks. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of people have grown up or lived seeing that video footage of people jumping from a building that was much taller than nine stories because it was either that or to be crushed or burned to like, it, it was horrible. And so just imagine that. And it's all these young women and girls leaping from these buildings and and it didn't need to happen this wasn't an attack this was just a bunch of rich business owners who were like fuck you i want my money yeah by the way they suffered no consequences so they're also having a really horrible time in hell everyone's going to hell in a handbasket in this episode right not a pretty one either so Frances decided to take the next step. She left the National Consumers League to become the executive secretary for the Committee on Safety of the City of New York. (gasps) Take a breath. She was actually recommended for the position by former President Theodore fucking Roosevelt. What? Hell yeah, Teddy. This committee was formed to investigate the fire and Frances consulted with experts to determine what had contributed to, to the tragedy. The investigation resulted in a lawsuit against the State Department of Labor and a variety of reforms to help prevent the event from ever being repeated and to provide better working conditions. Like I said, the owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory really didn't suffer any consequences, which is which is crap. But right, like, good did come from this. I understand suing the Labor Department, but like, don't you think the company should also be held responsible well they they basically put enough people between them and the actual factory where they were like well i mean we didn't tell them to lock the door so we didn't know it was like that like they had this plausible deniability and they knew what they were doing anyway in 1913 just two years after the triangle shirtwaist factory fire francis was an instrumental force in passing the 54-hour bill in new york which capped the number of working hours for women and children the bill was her baby and she worked incredibly hard to get it passed so all of you children who shouldn't fucking be listening anyway uh can thank (laughs) francis if you're not having to work a 55 plus hour work week all right and she actually, she did a ton to get that passed. And it was actually a pretty intense event, but I couldn't get all into it. But she's a fighter. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, during all of this, Francis found time to get married to Paul Wilson, who was an economist and secretary to the New- to New York City's mayor. Nice. In a move that was progressive for the time and is still kind of controversial today, Francis kept her maiden name Perkins. This was so her labor activism wouldn't reflect on her husband, who's obviously in a high political position. Right. That makes sense. And so nowadays, I feel it's a lot easier to keep your maiden name than change it. It just it's like I'm not filling out that paperwork. But during Francis's time, she actually had to defend her decision in court. And her decision became a sensational news story for which she received a lot of flack from conservatives. Huh. That's really weird yeah. and interesting. And I tried to find more about the court battle, but I, I couldn't. And this is already six pages of notes. So <laughs> of the, it's OK. We love you. Right. Of the decision to keep her name, Francis said, quote, 
I suppose I had been somewhat touched by feminist ideas, and that's one of the reasons that I kept my maiden name. My whole generation was, I suppose, the first generation that openly and actively asserted, at least some of us did, the separateness of women and their personal independence in the family relationship. So it's really just, I'm still my own person, even if I'm a part of this, like, you know, committed relationship and family unit. Right. As every relationship should be. It should be you, them, or like you, your partner, and then you guys together. Right. But you should always have your own separate things. And if you take your partner's maiden name, or I guess, yeah, their maiden name, uh, or you keep your own, or you guys like mix it together or come up with a new one entirely, as long as it's your choice, all of those are fine. It's just when it's not your choice. (laughs) That's a problem. So don't let it be not your choice. Exactly. Because it is your choice. Just a few years later in 1916, Frances gave birth to her daughter, Susanna. Frances stepped back from her public work to take care of her child, which again, as long as that's your choice, you do it. Mom it up. All I can think of is that one song. Oh, Susanna, don't you cry for me. Well, sorry. Apparently, Susanna cried a lot because she turned out to be pretty manic depressive. I didn't get too much into it. (laughs) Is the song about her? Maybe. I have no idea. So two years after Susanna was born, Francis's husband, Paul, began to suffer from a mental illness, exhibiting manic depressive symptoms. Oh, no. He was frequently hospitalized throughout the rest of their marriage. So he's just in and out of mental institutions for the rest of his life. And that's right. tragic. And clearly it passed on to their daughter. Yep. Oh. Because of this, Frances returned to her work to su- support her family. She held a variety of New York State government positions, steadily gaining a name for herself and respect from local leaders. In 1919, New York Governor Al Smith appointed Francis to the Industrial Commission of the State of New York. This was an unpopular move. Both manufacturers and laborers mm. felt Francis didn't represent their interests. Even though, she, I get the manufacturers maybe, but like the laborers, right. she's been eating, breathing, sleeping, and bleeding labor activism for so long now. But Right, I don't know, maybe it's just... Maybe they're talking more like the companies themselves, and so it's those rich people that, you know. Well, it it sounds insane when you first say it. It's like, why would you go against your own interests? But remember, she's a woman, and the consensus was that she couldn't identify with male workers and business owners. Uh, so, you know, even if she's fighting for labor dumb. rights, it's like, well, you don't get us. However. Right, and I'm sure they're like, well, you're fighting for female laborers, not us. Exactly. However, Governor Al deserves the king crown of the episode because he de- he defended his decision and felt that Francis would be a voice for women and girls who were in the workforce and even more underrepresented than the male laborers. Fuck they yeah. super needed a voice. <laughs> and what's good for them is going to be good for the men, too. Like, Right. In the end, it's better working conditions for everyone. So when Francis was being confirmed, there were senators who seemed to drag their feet on, like, giving the thumbs up. They said it totally wasn't because she was a woman, but they did weaponize the fact that she wouldn't take her husband's last name against her. But again, it's totally not a sexism thing. No, not at all. They said that the whole name change made a name thing made her a radical. Dude, it was so fucking easy to be a rebel back then. 
I know. I need to move back then. It would be easy. <laughs> finally. No, I don't want to live back then. <laughs> right? So finally, on February 18th, 1919, three days and 72 years away from my birthday, Frances was <laughs> confirmed and became one of the first female commissioners in the state. She also awesome. had, right? And she was making the bank. She was making it rain because she had an $8,000 salary, making her one of the highest paid women in state government. Get them, Benjamins, girl. Wow. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, it's still like, it's bad because like in the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah, but how did, how much did the men get paid? But that sounds really wet, like good for a woman. Like that's insane. I purposely didn't look up like how much men get paid because I'm like, I need this. I need a good thing right now. <laughs> right. Well, when you think of that, that's $8,000 of then. Right. Which is like $20 trillion today. Yes. That's bank. Buy a lot of gas with that, especially now. She, yeah, she's making it rain. Yeah, right now that it's like what, like one something. Right, it's insane. Oh. It's the lowest. It's I looked this up the other day. It's the lowest it's been since like two thousand two. That is wild. It's like we've gone back Maybe. in time. Actually, it might be nineteen ninety nine. It's like we've gone back in time because gas is low and I still can't go anywhere. <laughs> right. Interesting. So, Francis's job was to oversee the Industrial Code and to supervise the Bureau of Information and Statistics and the Bureau of Mediation and Arbitration. Sounds like an absolute blast. Right. Within her first six months, a fellow commissioner said that Francis's contributions were invaluable and that, quote, from the work which Miss Perkins has accomplished, I am convinced that more women ought to be placed in high positions throughout the state departments. So, side note, back to gas, because the gas it was like one twenty something last time I got gas. So yeah, the last time it was lower than that was nineteen ninety nine when it was one seventeen. Oh my god! So yeah, guys, it's all about the silver linings. <laughs> Anyways, continue. So it was in nineteen twenty nine when Francis had another encounter with a Roosevelt. Franklin Delano Roosevelt had just been elected governor of New York, and he appointed Francis as the first ever New York State Industrial Commissioner, which required her to supervise an agency of 1,800 employees. Holy shit. Yeah, that's insane. That's awesome, though. So throughout her career, she had earned the respect and cooperation of different political groups and servants, which helped her push forward progressive reforms throughout the state, including expanding factory investigations to make sure that they're safe, because we're kind of sick of them setting on fire. Right? Like, no more fires. Fighting to end child labor, reducing the work week for women to 48 hours, which is even further from the, like, monumental 54-hour bill. And right. championing, championing, ugh. championing, championing, she's champing, uh, she's champing minimum wage and un unemployment insurance laws. Jesus, that's awesome, though. Now, everything she has done up until this point is incredible and would make her worthy of recognition and praise. And we would have covered her regardless. But. Oh, there's a but. That's a she has yet to reach her magnum opus. Oh, geez. this shit gets insane. This next section I titled, Not That Kind of Cabinet. Because every time I had to write that word, I had the wrong image. So in 1933, Franklin Delano Roosevelt became president and quickly asked Francis to join his cabinet. 
which I always imagine a room with just a fuck ton of cabinets ever since I was a kid. It's got like an ugly green carpet and like kind of a mossy blue wall color and then just a fuck ton of dark wood cabinets. That's a very interesting uh, visual. So before accepting, Frances gave Roosevelt a long list of programs that she would fight for, including Social Security and minimum wage. She's like, this is what I'm going to be doing. You on board? She told Roosevelt, nothing like this has ever been done in the United States before. You know that, don't you? Roosevelt agreed and nominated Francis to become the Secretary of Labor, and a move that was supported by the National League of Women Vo- and Women Voters and the Women's Party, which there was a Women's Party? Right? What? That's interesting. None of this surprises me. Neither does this part. The American Federation of Labor disagreed with the nomination because they felt Francis didn't have any true ties with labor and therefore didn't represent their interests. And like, what? look, I get it. You want someone who's been in the trenches who has worked the grueling factory hours and conditions and all that. But Frances has dedicated her life to labor activism. She is highly right. educated. She has been in the trenches, maybe not working in the factories, but she knows it's a problem and she's fighting to fix it. And she's in a great position to do so. So like, come on. She was confirmed anyway. It, d- it didn't matter. Good. It didn't matter what they said. They just got to be crabby in the corner. So after being confirmed, Frances achieved two incredible firsts. She became the first woman to ever hold a cabinet position in the country. And she became the oh. first woman woman to enter the presidential line of succession. Nice. So that's amazing. It would have only taken the deaths of 11 very specific people for us to have our first female president. <laughs> That's funny. I like that you went and counted. I, I straight up Googled that shit and I, I got this. Uh, she was also featured on Time's August 14th, 1933 issue cover. Ooh, yeah. nice. As the head of the Department of Labor, Francis faced a beast of a problem. So at this time, the United States was in the, was in the midst of a Great Depression. The Great Depression, actually. People are out of work destitute and basically shit out of luck it's a bad time yeah the very bad time this is the financial and labor crisis that francis inherited and she greeted that bitch with open arms she's like she's wringing her hand she's like oh my god i'm gonna fix the shit out of you and it's gonna be awesome <laughs> right oh my god i'm gonna make this so good oh my god <laughs> <laughs> I like to think she got off on activism and, like, getting better labor rights. Like, oh, you guys got a water cooler in the break room now? Oh, that's awesome. Right? That would be fun. Anyway, her three headcanon. Hell yeah. Now, one of FDR's, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, for international listeners, greatest accomplishments was the New Deal. This was a series of programs and legislation that was meant to help get Americans back to work, get the economy out of the Depression, and prevent this shit from happening again because it didn't just happen on accident. There were a lot of really horrible practices that contributed to the majority of Americans being shit out of luck. But it's okay because the people who caused the Great Depression got a bunch of money and so they were fine. Francis. (laughs) Oh, God. History is such bullshit. It is. Oh, my God. Francis was crucial to the New Deal and actually wrote much of the legislation, which included 
minimum wage laws, workers' compensation, pensions, overtimes, the 40-hour work week, (gasps) child labor laws, the creation of the Civil Conservation Corps, which helped underemployed or unmarried men get work, and then its counterpart, she-she-she camps. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yes. uh, So these are camps that helped unemployed women, and they were called she-she-she camps. Like S H E. They could have workshopped that name a little more, but yeah, it was a good bit. idea. <laughs> so, Francis actually Jeez. helped Eleanor Roosevelt, another history hero, obviously, organize it. So, she got to work with Eleanor, and they were like, I imagine, best friends. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. So, most notably, Francis drafted the Social Security Act of 1935, which is why. We have Social Security. She did that. She is the mother of Social Security. So every time you see that money coming out of your paycheck, like you can be a little mad, like, oh, I want that money. But it's a good thing. And you can thank Francis and acknowledge it. Okay, it's a good thing. So the day that FDR signed the Social Security Act into law was a momentous one. But I imagine Frances's spirits were dampened a bit by her husband's escape from a mental institution that same day. Oh, Jesus. Frances can't have any nice things, okay? You know, that's a little bit of a bummer. However, so the picture of FDR signing the Social Security Act is truly amazing. So there's this room full of men and they're all kind of smiling and looking all in different directions like none of them are actually looking at the camera. And there is Frances Perkins right behind FDR who's seated so you can see her very clearly. And she is looking directly at the camera with this like simple almost relieved smile on her face and it's so precious and it's it's funny i get everyone else just seems kind of elated and they're like whoa this is cool hey guys but she is like making love to that camera and she's the focal point of the photo and she's just like this is her baby and it's like even the camera knew this was hers like everyone else is window dressing right now (laughs) That's funny. So speaking... She's like, I got this, bitches. Yeah. So speaking of her husband, uh, he's been in and out of mental institutions this whole time, which is absolutely tragic. But Frances was not alone. She had moved in with Mary Harriman Rumsey, who was the founder of the Junior League, which still exists. And my mom actually used to be in it. And it took me a minute when I, I was like, what the fuck is this? I Googled it and I'm like, oh, shit, I remember that. So it's like a women's volunteer organization with the goal of making positive changes in communities at the social level. So it's like female activism and volunteer work. So these two amazing women are living together in D.C. with no men. But they're totally just friends, you guys. Just like Eleanor Roosevelt was totally just friend with friends with Hick. Those love letters, oh no, they were just like... That's just how they talked back then. Everyone was just super it's romantic just, and it's friendly. Super flowery language back yeah, then. It's yeah, yeah, but like no homo guys. Everyone was so straight. Gay people were invented in like 2000, okay? When skinny jeans came on the scene, it was game over. <laughs> so Francis and Mary lived together until Mary died in 1934. And after this, Francis moved in with Caroline O'Day, a Democrat congresswoman. So Francis's queerness is often ignored or completely denied. Like, but plenty. No, they were just friends. Yeah. 
It's like, fuck That's you. That's totally the thing. Like, no, yeah, they were just like really good friends and they never got married and they had a cat named Labia or something. I don't know. <laughs> but plenty of LGBTQ plus history uh, acknowledges Francis, like cites and articles. In fact, the National Park Foundation published an article in 2016 titled LGBTQ America, the theme study of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer history. And this article recognizes Frances Perkins and how her sexuality has actually been erased from historic sites that relate to her and other queer people. Interesting. And so let's be honest. History has worked really hard to erase members of the LGBTQ plus community. In fact, in Wikipedia, there is a mention of her living with Mary, but it states... There is no evidence of a romantic relationship between them. So it's like, you know, they live together, but like they were totally straight, you guys. And then the reference in the Wikipedia article is that National Park Foundation article I just said. Oh, Jesus Christ. Which is literally titled, if you forgot already, LGBTQ America, the theme study of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer history. But they were totally straight, you guys. <laughs> God damn it. Like, are you fucking kidding me? So Frances probably could have had a wedding with a woman and people would have written about it and said she had a tea party with a single female friend in which they both wore white dresses. Some flowers were briefly tossed, but otherwise it was an uneventful affair. (laughs) Like, geez, like. Oh, that is the best description. Yeah. So Frances. That's the best description. Frances Perkins, queer icon. Done. So while Frances is generally killing it, her time in office was not without controversy. When union leader Harry Bridges was... You mean you mean more controversy? <laughs> oh, yes. Every time she walked into the room, they were like, boobs! Boobs! You guys! I don't know how to handle this! <laughs> I don't understand! But, but, they, but they come out from your body and they... What? What, you mean you have to wear something to hold them? Just use your hands! What are you talking about? Right. Imagine if she wore pants. Fucking stop. Their heads would just fucking explode. (laughs) So when union leader Harry Bridges was being prosecuted for labor organizing and being associated with the Communist Party, Francis refused to support his deportation. And this labor organizer was actually vindicated by the Supreme Court. So he was getting nailed to the wall for labor organizing and they said it was something else. But eventually the Supreme Court was like, no, everyone's just being an asshole. (laughs) Right. People think he's a communist, so they're being assholes. Right. And it's mostly because he's like, hey, maybe we shouldn't have a bunch of women have to jump from windows because their workplace caught on fire because it's a death trap. Anyway. Imagine that. Frances Perkins served as the Secretary of Labor until June 30th, 1945. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had died and his VP Harry Truman became president. Truman assembled his own cabinet in that blue mossy room with all the dark wood cabinets and the ugly green carpet and replaced Francis as secretary of labor. In total, Francis served for 12 years, longer than any other secretary of labor ever. Wow. Though she was... That's impressive. Right? Though she was no longer secretary of labor, President Truman did ask her to serve on the United States Civil Service Commission. Francis used the position to fight against sexist government policies like government officials requiring their female administrative staff to be hot. 
So everyone was like, that just puts a bad taste in my mouth. Right. So everyone's bitching that there aren't enough receptionists and secretaries and stenographers, but they're only hiring like really hot women. And Francis is like, we have this whole pool of women who are very capable, regardless of how they look. Maybe don't just hire hot people. (laughs) Right. Maybe actually look at their qualifications, not just their boobs. Right. She served until 1952 when her husband died, which her husband just comes up and he's always the most tragic person in the room. Uh, Yeah. But she didn't slow down. So good for her. The same year, she published her memoir about serving in the Roosevelt administration titled The Roosevelt I Knew, which I hear Ken Burns saying it. And I want that. (laughs) After she left government service, Frances didn't slow down. She lectured at New York State School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell, which is so niche. She also lectured at the University of Illinois, which is where my dad used to work in my hometown. What? She officially retired from the workforce when she died in 1965 at 85 years old. I don't know if that's considered retiring. (laughs) Hey, she didn't do it otherwise. Her death was her resignation. She's not giving those bitches two weeks. When I'm out, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so recent. Like, she only died in 1965. Right. Yeah, that is real recent. She is buried in the Glidden Cemetery in Newcastle, Maine. So you can go visit her grave. Legacy. Frances Perkins' legacy is far-reaching and touches all of our lives and paychecks. Especially now with so many people out of work, the system she championed are helping Americans make ends meet. Like, I know the, the stimulus payments have been, you know, a lot of talk about that. Uh, people are trying to apply for unemployment, all this stuff. None of that would even be an option if it weren't for Frances Perkins. She did this on a national scale. She helped get us through the Great Depression. Like, FDR is always associated with the New Deal, but we never acknowledge that Frances Perkins wrote most of the shit. And FDR, like, gave her the thumbs up the whole way. There were only a few things he didn't agree with her on. Otherwise, he's like, girl, you got this. Keep going. Keep going, and I'll just sign it at the end. Yeah, he's like, you're making this so easy. Everything looks fantastic. (laughs) So she has memorials, monuments, buildings named after her, and a stamp to add to your history stamp collection. In 2010, a book, The Woman Behind the New Deal, The Life and Legacy of Frances Perkins, Social Security, Unemployment Insurance, and the Minimum Wage, was published, and I want it. We need to start our our own history library. We have like three books already. Oh, we've got way more than that. We need to buy more books. We've got... Okay, I want some super fan to go through our episodes and write down all of the books that we either tell you you should read or that we want so that we can start buying them and like even create a list to share with everyone. Right, we'll we'll make an Amazon list. Yes. So I highly recommend that for anyone who wants to know more about her. I certainly do. In 1982, Frances was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. In 2015, she was named by the Equality Forum as one of their 31 icons of that year's LGBT History Month. So, like, she's being acknowledged as a queer icon. And yet, like, people are still like, "Mm, I don't know, guys. There's really no evidence to support that she was, you know, a a lesbian or bi or pan or whatever. 
In 2019, uh, she was announced to be one of the first members inducted into the Government Hall of Fame. So they're like doing their first round of picking people to be inducted. And she's one of them. She's in the inaugural class. And Frances Perkins is a legend and an icon who was a critical part of the New Deal, labor reforms nationally in the United States, and to get us through the Great Depression. See her, recognize her, and say her fucking name. And that's my story. That's Frances Perkins. Yeah, that was, wow. And like, I know the New Deal. I know the reforms from the Great Depression. I know after, like, there was so many. I know the Triangle Sherwaist Factory. I learned about that when I was a wee tot. But I'm like, man, I didn't know that she touched all of this and was actually not only had a hand in it, but was instrumental in pushing it forward. Right. I've never heard her Absolutely name. bonkers. So, Emily. So, Kelly. What are you thankful for this week? I purposely pause because I'm like, I can't ask I know. Kelly first. She'll get so mad at me. Um, she's like, she, I, I sensed you waiting. You did. <laughs> um, I am thankful. I'm actually going to be returning to my regular hours at work, which like wow. bye bye three day weekends. But hello, regular paycheck. So that's going to be nice. Um, is, is your guys's work picking back up? Um, I think the business qualified for a, a an, like an emergency loan just because of what's going on to help support businesses who are affected. So that's nice. That's nice. Um, uh, I'm also really thankful for Jared because he he's home all the time being a disabled veteran. And so having me home all the time now, I, I don't think he dislikes it, but it definitely is a different routine, which can be very difficult to adjust to. But he's been incredibly supportive, especially with the podcast, because it used to be that he like, oh, I'm doing it at this day, this time. And the only thing that changed in his world was that I was out of the house for that period of time. But now it's like, oh, I'm using the office. You know, he feels like he has to kind of tiptoe around. But he's been really loving and really supportive. And so I'm really thankful for him. Because this is an adjustment for both of us. And he's just been absolutely wonderful. And especially when he came in in the middle of my story and started making faces right at me <laughs> to try to distract oh, me. I had no idea. Exactly. No, he's like putting hearts in my face and making dumb and like sticking his tongue out. And I'm like, I'm a professional. <laughs> this, this is why Emily didn't have her webcam on today. Because I can't get my fucking camera to work. I don't know why. Have you been staring at my desktop this whole time? No, I've been staring at your camera. My, I can't get my <laughs> camera to work. I can see you. No, when I pulled up my Skype, it was showing my desktop for oh. some reason. I must have accidentally hit the button, but not actually gone through nope, with it. Nope, I still get to see your beautiful face. You're going to be picking at my nails as you yes. talk. <laughs> Kelly, what are you thankful for? I... I have to think about that. There's a lot going on right now. I'm thankful for one of my friends who is doing a workout challenge with me. And we're kind of we kind of pushed each other to do it. It was kind of a weird thing, but we're like partners in it. And, you know, it's 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 good because I've been losing a bunch of weight, um, but I haven't been like working out. So I'm like not toned at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was it was good. Like it was and it gives me something to do. Like I'm unlike you, I'm probably going to be furloughed. 
which is fine. Like our company is being super transparent about it. And they're like, no, we're, we're going to bring you all back, you know, when we have the need, when we know we'll need you. And they're being very, very transparent. And I'm also thankful for that. But, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for the a friend that, you know, is not that you're not there for me. We have this, you know, and it's great. and I love it. But, you know, it, it's something else for me to like focus on. You have people in your life outside of me, and that is okay. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's mainly you and Justin, and then like a small subset. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, though, because I, I know I've been struggling with my fitness. I really got into the routine of going to the gym and running on the treadmill and using it to cope with my anxiety. Like, I would just run right. until I'm like, I am too exhausted to like feel that anxious knot in my chest. And so not being able to do that in the same way has been difficult, but like doing walks, doing yoga at home and just kind of the little things. Right. Like I sent, I love that yoga video you sent me. I cannot, I need to look up that message because I tried to find it again. I thought I clicked on it and I clicked on something totally different and I was not prepared for, but I did it. Yeah. It's, it's definitely still in our, I really like it. Yeah. Thank you so much for sending that to me. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I don't know. It's just something, you know, to kind of keep me more grounded. And like I said, knowing I'm going to be furloughed, it's going to be, you know, something for me to do every day to kind of keep me more anchored. Absolutely. I'm really glad to hear that because everyone's coping with this in their own way. And I'm glad you're taking a really healthy step with your coping. I guarantee you I'm making a list of things I'm going to accomplish while I'm not working. Nice. Nice. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Please like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod. Sorry, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. We have a website, whiningaboutherstory.com, and our email address is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. Please send us your herstory heroes, your shout outs, women you want us to cover, if you're bored. Literally anything. We actually, one of our listeners just sent us a podcast recommendation. It was another like a historical podcast. uh, And I am going to be listening to that this week. And I'm really excited. I haven't gotten a chance yet. But neither have I. But it's on my list. So send us your shit. (laughs) And then also please rate us five stars wherever you listen. And you know what? If uh, this wasn't the academic lecture slash discussion you were looking for, maybe just keep that shit to yourself. (laughs) And uh, we know for some people funds are running low, but if you have a little extra time or a little extra money, we do have a Patreon. You can subscribe for as little as $1, especially since I have some time off. There'll definitely be new content coming out there. Absolutely. Um, Or just, you know, help us pay for our wine. Yep. And you know, whatever. We do have a goal on there. When we hit, uh, I think I put like 25 patrons, we're going to start putting more energy into merch. We've got some stickers. We've got some glasses that Kelly is lovingly making, but we're going to be doing more. And then also starting in May, we're going to have our first juice box episode come out on patreon so those are kid friendly retellings of the herstory heroes we've covered uh we're going to be starting with a very one of my favorites honestly sarah biffin so if you don't remember she's the armless legless painter to royalty right and then sometime after that we'll have one on sybil luddington because i think that's one all children should know about. amen so watch out for those because you know if you subscribe for as little as $1 and you have kids at home that are 
needing to learn shit, you know, we'll give you the kid-friendly versions and you can actually share it with your children. Distance learning for as little as $1 a month. How can you afford not to? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day, bitches. Bye. Bye.